Thank you very much, Wayne. Um, Patrick is now going to talk about the trove that is the Abbey. Thanks, Patrick. I think I might just call this living with ghosts. Uh, I wanted to talk about the past a bit, so forgive me for that, indulge me a little, because the present is so fascinating, but maybe the past is something of a key to the present, possibly something of a description of the future, hope not, anyway. And I want to talk about the Abbey, and I want to talk about the Abbey as a place of memory, not just personal memory, uh, but I suppose something of a national memory, or at least that's the aspiration. And as we all know, the gap between aspiration and uh, what is actually achieved is always disappointing, but the aspiration does remain. I first joined this theater uh, nearly 43 years ago, and I'm aware as I speak to you now from this stage that there are many, many ghosts crowding around. And one of the things I'm proudest of doing in my time as artistic director of the theater in the 90s was to start the National Theater Archive. Memory, or what used to be called memoria, is the very place of imagination. In the Greek world, Memosina, the muse of memory, was the eldest of the muses. She was the big sister. She both fostered, nurtured, and enabled the other muses of dance, song, drama, so on. Memosina, memoria. Memori is a bigger bigger place than simply a data cloud. It's not just about information. It's about insight, experience. It's about the knowledge, hard won, hard gained, experiential knowledge, the achievements of one generation passed on to another generation, not to overburden them, not to destroy them, but like a big sister, to foster, to nurture, to encourage. And one of the themes that I find emerging maybe is there's a slight crisis at the moment about the ability or even the appropriateness of an act of imagination to encompass the trauma, the experience, the harshness of real life. The founders of this theater, if we are to remember them, and I think we should, saw things a little differently. They saw the act of imagination as being the means towards unburdening towards articulating, towards giving language and story to all sectors of society that heretofore had no voice. But yes, they saw this happening through 
the individual imagination, the imagination of the great artist, in their case, the great writer, playwright. It's an approach. But their fundamental trust was in the act of imagination and its curative, therapeutic, and inspirational possibility. This may seem a long way from founding an archive, but imagination is rooted in memory. Archive is there to remember, first of all, what we did, secondly, how we did it, and for the third point, why we did it. Archive is as much a record of disaster and failure as it is of triumph. It is arguable that if this theatre had not been established, there would be no plough in the stars. If that openness towards unsolicited scripts, which was here from day one, that any citizen of the state that didn't even exist at that point could submit a script to be read for the theatre. And that little exercise book that came through in 1924 with Juno and the Peacock inside, and as they say, the rest is history. But they had to wait from 1906 and J.M. Singh till the 20s for Casey. So maybe theatre is also a waiting game. But because this theatre was here, and because there was a company of actors who had been established, there was the means for that story to be enacted. We heard from the president about uh, how patrician Yeats could be, and he seems to have had a complete blind spot about the 1418 war. I mean, the whole shenanigans over the silver tassie and all of that. He just, see, just didn't seem to get it at all. But you know, we all have blind spots, but that was quite a major one. But anyway, one of his great sound bites in founding the theater is that he wished to bring to the stage the deeper thoughts and emotions of Ireland. Now, we're suspicious of this. How can any one person bring anywhere the deeper thoughts and emotions of Ireland. Uh, and indeed, when uh, Frank O'Connor told Yeats about Dev's remark about, you know, when I want to know what to do I look, uh, with Ireland, I look into my heart, you know, and Yeats said, where else would he look? <laughs> we are suspicious, for good reason, of this kind of patrician, top-down approach. But yet, the aspiration remains. We record what we do, we record how we do it. Because there's a whole aspect to theater making which is about technique, experience, not to be handed on in a stultifying and dead way as uh, Wayne was alluding to, the baggage that some of these plays uh, actually carry not to form some sort of oppressive, rigorous, uh, hegemonic tradition. There used to be a lot of debate in the 70s and 80s about the Abbey tradition, and it caused an awful lot of trouble. Not to do that, 
but really to stop us having to invent the wheel every time we come to put something on the stage. You do learn certain craft in theater making. Whether that craft is appropriate in some of the matters we talked about is a very interesting question. But in terms of the art of theater, craft, insight, technical insight, is of crucial importance in supporting the development of the practice of the art of theater. Why do we do it? The most contentious and the most necessary of all aspects of archive, the interpretation, the narrative, the narrative that we're going to construct, be it the narrative of the winner, the narrative of whatever ideologue or ideology or theology is available and never underestimate the power of ideology of all kinds to get between you and the facts. Yes, all is psyche, all is interpretation, ultimately. That's our problem, that's the human condition, the bind we live in. It's our awareness of that and our critical response to it which is so crucial, as Wayne was saying about his work and Stacey about hers. It's the critical position we take to the why. And that seems to me to supply an extraordinary history of this theatre. One issue, point of issue I'd have with Mannix is he kept describing it as the state theatre. In fact, the history of this theatre tells a very different story. Yes, there were years, occasions, figures who tried indeed to capture the theatre for, if you like, uh, a kind of state ideology, but they all, thank God, failed. And if there's one great person who we should remember on this stage and on this day, it's Augusta Lady Gregory, who when faced with a veto by the then government of the Plough and the Stars, told the Taoiseach of the day, you have misunderstood your position. If it is a choice between our subsidy, they had just won a government subsidy and therefore got a government member on the board who had vetoed the play. If it's a choice between our subsidy and our freedom, then we choose our freedom. And the point was made. And that is in the history of this theater, that is in the DNA of this theater, and still is to this day. So archive. Memory, the story of theatre-making, the appropriateness of theatre. How do we answer this call? And every generation has answered it differently, and the challenge is for us to answer it differently again. How do we bring the life, the thoughts, the deeper emotions of this community, of these communities? How do we articulate them? How do we approach trauma? How do we undo? How do we articulate? No easy answers. But I'll tell you one, I suppose, story that helps maybe throw some light on this. And that is the genesis of a play called Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Song. Um, with all the commemorations coming up, of course, suddenly the play is hot. Everyone wants to do the Somme for 2016. 
What's interesting about the genesis of the play, it has nothing to do with dates. It has to do with memorial. And it has to do with Frank McGuinness walking through Coleraine, teaching at the university, and passing every day the war monument in the center of Coleraine. This would be in the early 80s. And Frank stopping longer and longer each day to read the names and thinking about the absence of such a memorial in the Republic. And one thing leading to another. And in his imagination, voices, images, Piper, the elder Piper, the sculptor, the Battle of Scarborough, and finally, miraculously, an extraordinary script, play, a play, arriving to the National Theatre, being performed first in the Peacock and then subsequently here on the Abbey stage, a revival that I did. I did the first production down in the Peacock, and we did a revival in the 90s uh, I was then artistic director, and it was something of a play I wanted to revive, but it came about because Frank rang me on the day that uh, the IRA ceasefire was declared, and he said, we have to do something. We have to do something to mark this. And I said, well, we're going to do the Sons of Elsa next year. Why don't we do it now? I know, it's not exactly the play you'd choose, but think about it. So we did. And on the week we previewed, the, uh, the, the UDA announced their, and the UVF announced their ceasefire. And on the opening night in this space, in this theater, we had representatives of all those involved in the peace negotiations in the North, plus government representatives here, to witness this story being acted out. And if you ask me for a definition of what a national theatre is and can do and should do, I will give you the story of that night and that play. Now, you may argue that it was not appropriate for an individual writer to take on those lives, articulate those lives, as indeed one of the last surviving veterans of the Somme when we took the play up to the Opera House in Belfast said, coming out of the thing, he was interviewed, and he said, there were no fruits at the Somme. The act of imagination is never documentary. It seeks to go beyond the documentary, but by revealing maybe an imagined situation, hopefully gaining insight into the essential humanities involved in the, in, in the situation, in the real situation. There's a story, and I've got one further comment, because I am troubled by this thing about imagination versus reality, trauma, and how we deal with aestheticizing of trauma and the dangers, which are real. And there's a wonderful line by Emily Dickinson, where she says, tell the truth, but tell it slant. There's some quirk in the way we respond the way we perceive 
There's also some innate, I was going to say courtesy, but maybe it's a respect, a healthy respect for the trauma of reality that says that maybe the artist's or the artistic take cannot be direct. Maybe it has to be slant. Thanks.